My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 9th, 2013. Yes, we will be doing our light episode today, and I figured out how to work out the balance here, because the series we've been working through with uh, Sinclair Ferguson only had five lectures, and that's not going to work, because <laughs> uh, the fifth lecture is too short, so I found a way to supplement it. That's right. Necessity is the mother of invention. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, part of that endeavor to uh, help you to learn discernment is to expose you to good preaching and teaching that focuses in on Christ. And that comes in a variety of different formats, if you would. In Lutheranism, you know, we have, uh, I'm a confessional Lutheran, uh, our sermons are oftentimes homilies, which is a slightly different style of sermon, if you would. Um, not exactly in the same vein as an exegetical sermon that you would hear from uh, uh, somebody in the Reformed camp. Not that there's anything wrong with exegetical sermons. In fact, I'm actually a bigger fan of exegetical sermons than I am homilies, but that that's probably a story, uh, a topic for another time. But uh, what we've been listening to is a series of lectures by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson on five questions about Jesus. You know, Jesus said what? Jesus did that? Jesus who? And Jesus crucified why? And now we're up to the last one. <laughs> and I'll throw in a, a bonus Sinclair Ferguson uh, lecture to help balance out the time today. So today we're going to be listening to the final lecture in that series entitled uh, The Empty Tomb, So What? The Empty Tomb, So What? And then we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll listen to a lecture, a sermon, 
if you would, uh, delivered by Sinclair Ferguson on Jude, uh, Jude verses 1 through 25, the entire uh, letter, if you would. And the name of that is Contending for the Faith. I think that would be a great way to round all this out. And uh, the idea here is to, it's a, it's a story of contrast, if you would. You listen to seeker-driven preaching, you listen to emergent uh, liberal pastrics preaching, you listen to uh, Word of Faith preaching, you hear all kinds of weird stuff going on out there. Here's something that's far more anchored. And one of the things I notice about Sinclair Ferguson, he's far more experiential in his focus than I am, okay? Um, I am one who, you know, considers experience to be inherently subjective and not something that um, I, I'll, I find all that compelling because when you study all of these different uh, religions out there as well, as well as the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement, everybody's got experiences. But Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a little more experiential than I am. Uh, that being the case, I think that he has some good points. And uh, with that, we'll dive into uh, lecture number five of five, entitled uh, The Empty Tomb, So What? Here's Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. Now for our Bible reading this Easter Sunday evening, we are turning to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John the 20th chapter of the fourth gospel, John, and we're going to read from verse 19 to the end of verse 31 at the end of the chapter. Jesus had on Easter Sunday morning appeared to Mary as the first half of this chapter records. She had gone back, verse 18, with the news to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Had Jesus of Nazareth been a great religious teacher merely, it probably would have been fitting that on some occasion during the course of the year, people in different parts of the world should think about him and reflect on that teaching. If Jesus had been more than a teacher, if Jesus had been a great teacher and then become a martyr, it would have been appropriate, perhaps on the anniversary of his death, Friday past, that people in different parts of the world should gather together with some sense of solemnity to think of the tragedy that had been befallen such an extraordinary teacher and such an obviously great man. And if both of these things were true, then it would have been appropriate for us to place Jesus along with some of the other great religious teachers of world history and with some of the other great martyrs to great causes in the past. But we have been doing something altogether different from either of these two things. We have not had a day in the year, a thinking day, to remember some of the things that Jesus taught. We have not had a memorial service annually to remember that this great teacher died a horrific martyr's death. And indeed, if you have opened your mouth to sing in church this evening, it will have become obvious to you that this evening, this Easter day, we have been doing and saying something entirely different altogether from anything that you will find in any other faith, in any other religion, in any other way of life, in all of human history. We have been singing that Jesus rose from the dead. We have been singing that the powers of death have done their worst, but Christ their legions has dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Hallelujah. And even as we have been singing these things, we have not only been claiming something different for Jesus of Nazareth from any other religious teacher, any other martyr, we have actually been saying that Jesus does something different to the human soul from any other religious teacher. There is no other religion in the face of the earth that calls upon its members to let shouts of joy burst out because of what their leader has done in the sufferings or martyrdom he has gone through. No, on Easter Sunday of all Sundays, in the singing of Easter hymns of all hymns, we are claiming and singing something altogether unique for Jesus. We are singing and claiming that the thing that makes Jesus Christ so different, so utterly unique, is that he rose from the dead. And 
that He is alive forevermore and indeed present with His people. It is sometimes said that that is one of the best attested facts of human history. And we were reading in church this morning a passage from the pen of the Apostle Paul in which he provides us with a litany of the people who witness the risen Jesus Christ. Indeed, he says, on one occasion, Jesus appeared to 500 people simultaneously. And the implication of what he is saying is, if you don't believe me, go and ask them, because most of them are still alive. And down through the ages, Christian people of all colors, of all races, with all different kinds of backgrounds, high and low, have shared in that testimony and confessed out of their own experience of the presence of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is risen and alive. We have a member of our church here in St. George's Tran who was brought up in Russia. And I will never forget her telling me how when she was a young student on Christmas Day of all days, she was taken into the university to write an essay on Christmas Day, Why There Is No God. It reminds me of something I read a number of years ago in the USSR under the days of communist oppression when in one of the great cities there was this huge communist rally. And the whole purpose of this rally was to make it clear to the Soviet people that God was no longer to find a place in the system. And they produced one of their brightest intellects to speak to this huge concourse of people about all the reasons why they shouldn't believe in the existence of God and why they should put aside the old fables about Jesus Christ. And as that intellectual proudly turned to the Orthodox priest, who was the next speaker, and told him it was his turn, what would he have to say? The Orthodox priest went to the podium, and he pronounced two Greek words, Kyrie eleison, the words from the New Testament, the Lord is risen. And with one mighty voice, thousands, tens of thousands of these people responded with a mighty shout, the Lord is risen indeed. And the Orthodox priest sat down, recognizing that even under that kind of regime, there were large numbers of men and women whose personal experience verified the teaching of the New Testament. They had experienced exactly the same things the disciples experienced. And for that reason, they had become confident that what the New Testament said about Jesus was true. And he really was risen from the dead. And one of the reasons the Gospel of John comes almost to a conclusion with this rather marvelous little story of the disciples hiding in the upper room is because John, who has just begun to tell us 
the story of that first Easter Sunday, is anxious immediately for the readers of his gospel to know the kind of difference it makes to discover that Jesus is risen from the dead. John is interested, if I can put it this way, in the cash value of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has no doubt that it took place. He came to know the risen Christ himself. But what he wants to say to us in these verses is, he says, I want to explain to you from the experience of Christ that we had, the cash value, the difference, the impact that the risen Jesus Christ makes upon those who come to discover Him and thus come to trust Him and to know Him. And there are several things that I want to pick out from these marvelous stories that make this very obvious. John is really saying to you, do you want to understand what difference it makes to know and trust in a risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what it meant to us. And the first thing he underlines is this, that the risen Christ brings peace to those who are deeply distressed. The risen Christ brings peace to those who are deeply distressed. And these disciples were deeply distressed. They were deeply distressed for the simple reason they were in mourning. Their whole life had been turned upside down. And this was no ordinary mourning, because a good number of these disciples had quite literally given up everything in order to be with Jesus. For them, there had been no turning back. Jesus' death not only influenced them personally in the sense that the death of someone we love influences us personally, but for some of them, there was no job on Monday morning. They had given up everything, and so they were in deep distress. And not only so, but as John tells us, they were actually in a little room with the doors locked because they were full of fear about what other people would say and possibly do to them. So they were distressed because they were in mourning, and they were frightened because they were in danger. And then this amazing thing happens. Jesus himself appears to them. And I wonder if you notice that when Jesus appears to them on this occasion and the following Sunday when he reappears to them, his first word to these distressed and confused disciples is to say, Peace be with you. And it's evident in both cases that as soon as he opens his mouth and says this with such extraordinary authority, peace be with you, the disciples' hearts and spirits became instantaneously calm. It must have reminded them a little of that famous occasion when they'd been with Jesus in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm had come up and the boat was sinking and they were terrified. They thought they were going to lose Jesus, and they thought they were going to lose their own lives. And they waken Jesus, and he stands in the prow of the ship, and he says to the sea, Peace be still. And all nature suddenly calms down. 
And now they're experiencing this not only outside themselves, they're experiencing this inside themselves. And they're also experiencing something of extraordinary importance. They are discovering that Jesus Christ knows the deepest need of their heart is for peace. Not just, notice, not just calmness, but for peace. And that's the reason he immediately shows them his hands and his side and his feet. Why does he do that? Well, of course, in part to show to them that he really is one and the same Jesus who was crucified three days before. But more than that, he says, I'm giving you my peace. And then he shows them in the marks of his own body what he has done for them in order to bring them that peace. As a matter of fact, what Jesus is really doing is reminding them of words about which he had spoken to them often enough before, words that they all knew from the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures, from the great prophecy of Isaiah and his 53rd chapter, when he had written this about a Savior who would come, he had said, He will be wounded for our transgressions. He will be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement to bring us peace will be upon Him, and with the stripes He receives we will be made whole and given peace. He's really saying to them, my dear distressed, heartbroken disciples, I have come to bring you not only a sense of calm because I'm alive forevermore, I've come to bring you what you need even more than that, a sense that your sin and your guilt is forgiven. And because of these wounds I suffered in bearing your sin upon the cross of Calvary, I've come to offer to you nothing less than peace with God. It was the most wonderful thing he could possibly have said to them, and it is certainly the most wonderful thing that he could say to you. You may be sure that you have peace with God, says the Apostle Paul, by trusting in the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And my friends, the fact of the matter is, until you are absolutely certain you are going to heaven, you never can have peace in this world. Death, as it approaches, is bound to destroy your peace, unless you are sure of the forgiveness of sins which Jesus is giving to His disciples here. So the risen Christ came to them, and He brought peace to them in their distress. But the second thing Jesus brings to them is this. He brings joy to them because they are broken-hearted. 
This is another thing that John obviously delights to bring out as he describes the experience of these disciples. They not only experienced peace, they experienced joy. They rejoiced. They were full of joy. Somebody has said that peace is joy resting and joy is peace dancing. And that was certainly true of these men and the women who seem also to have been present. They had been given the peace of Christ and it is almost as though that peace exploded throughout their whole lives. And they began to rejoice. The smiles returned to their faces, the delight to their eyes. You can almost see them excitedly hugging one another. He's alive. He's with us. And they have this great consciousness that because he has risen from the grave as the one who forgives their sin, at last, lasting joy can return to their lives. Lasting joy can return to their lives. What is this joy? It is, as I say, simply the explosion of the peace that is theirs because they have this new consciousness that they have been delivered from their burden of guilt. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes about how amazing this is. He says, when we come to trust in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And then he says, because we have peace with God, we are able to rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And because we are sure of that, he says, we can even rejoice even although we are going through experience of suffering. Because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ will bring us through that suffering to His glory. And for that reason, he says, we who once were enemies of God, he says all this in Romans chapter 5, we who once were enemies of God are now able to rejoice in God Himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's a great evidence of being a Christian, that God is no longer your enemy. God is no longer the one from whom you hide, of whom you are in your heart of hearts. Whatever bravado you show to others in your heart of hearts, you are terrified of meeting Him. God becomes the object of your joy because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ brings peace. Christ brings joy. But there's a third thing I would like to point out to you that Jesus Christ brings to His disciples here. And in some ways, it's the most fundamental of all. Jesus Christ brings to these disciples a new creation out of the ruins of the old. Why do I say that? I say that because, as you may have noticed in our reading, when Jesus said to them, peace be with you, he then did a very unusual thing. It's the only time in the whole of Jesus' life and ministry he does this. He came to them and he breathed on them. He came to them and he breathed on them. Now, why did he do that? He did that as 
a kind of acted parable of what he wanted to do with their lives. And John writes about this because he was very conscious of the way in which Jesus in his life and ministry took little hints from the teaching of the Old Testament, little hints about the kind of thing God, Jehovah, does, and he applied them to himself. He takes some of the titles of God given in the Old Testament, and he applies them to himself. And here in these wonderful moments when he comes and he breathes on his disciples, he does something very remarkable. Because at the very beginning of the Bible, when man was created right at the beginning, out of the dust of the earth, the second chapter of the book of Genesis says, God, as it were, came and he breathed life into the man he had created out of the chaos and the darkness and the slime and the mud of the earth. And we are told, as God breathed upon this creature, man became a living being. You see what Jesus is suggesting to his disciples he is able to give to them? Here they are in a world that is full of need, full of tragedy, full of sin, full of alienation. And he's really saying, I've risen from the grave. I'm alive forevermore because what I am going to do is to begin a new kind of creation altogether. And he breathed on them as though he were saying, and you are going to be the first men and the first women who are part of this new creation. And whenever someone comes to know and trust in Jesus Christ in this way, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl is breathed upon by Jesus and becomes part of this new creation. Says Paul to the Corinthians, if anyone comes to faith in Christ, then it's like being part of a new creation altogether. We have a hymn we sometimes sing that has a line in it that goes like this. Listen to it. Something lives in every hue which Christless eyes have never seen. What's the hymn writer talking about? He's really saying this. He's saying, since I became a Christian, I look at the whole world with new eyes. Things have changed. I'm part of a new creation. I've got new desires. I see life in a different way. I see people in a different way. I most of all see Jesus Christ in a different way. Indeed, Paul says, I used to think of Christ as a great teacher, but misguided. And now I no longer think of him that way, but I trust him, serve him, love him as my Lord and Savior. That's what happens whenever anyone becomes a Christian. The old passes away, and new desires are born into our hearts. This book, the Bible, that seems so difficult to understand, so dull, so much full of ancient history and things that seem to belong to another world, it becomes alive to us. Singing God's praises, loving to serve God, 
these things that Jesus says are complete mysteries to those who have never been breathed upon by Him. These things become wonderfully and gloriously real. I have a very good friend who is a minister in Wales who I remember saying that there was a young man who had recently become a Christian in his congregation. He had been coming for some months and as he was interviewed for membership in that church, the young man told the leaders of the church how boring the sermons used to be until he had come to the church. And now, he said, the sermons are so much better in these last few months I've been coming to church, and you're choosing much better hymns, and the prayers are more interesting. And these men were spiritually wise enough to know that their minister's sermons actually weren't any better. They're even shorter, the young man said, but they knew they were actually slightly longer. The hymns were the same. The desire to pray was the same. The singing the same. The preaching was the same. But so much had changed for this young man that he didn't realize that it was he who had changed. And he'd entered into a new world that he was only beginning to grasp. That's what Jesus is doing. He's breathing on them, and He's saying, I'm going to bring you into a new world altogether and give you a new start. Now, that's what you need, isn't it? You've said it. You might not say it to me. You might not say it tonight, but you've said it to yourself, and you've maybe said it to God. Oh, God, if I could begin again. My friend, you can't begin again. You can't. But He can give you a new beginning. And that's what He is doing as He breathes on these disciples. But before we finish this evening, there's a fourth thing I want you to notice. And that is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is able to bring doubters through to faith. Remember how the passage ends with Thomas? Good old Thomas. Good old, skeptical, modern, scientific Thomas. Not afraid to speak the truth unless I can stick my fingers into the places where the nails were, unless I can put my hand into the side where Jesus was wounded by the spear, then I won't believe. You bunch of suckers, you've been taken in by some strange experience, but I'm a clear-thinking, rational, logical, scientific man. Jesus is dead, despite the fact he knew the tomb was empty. I wonder if you caught in that story what happened when Jesus appeared again the next Sunday evening and he said something to Thomas that made it perfectly clear to all the disciples, but particularly to Thomas, that he'd actually been there listening to Thomas say, I don't believe. He repeats Thomas's own words to him. And he says, now, Thomas, stick your finger in. Put your fist in. And don't doubt, but believe. And then he says, 
And let me say this, Thomas, so that men and women and boys and girls throughout history may learn this lesson. You have been blessed because at last you've been brought from doubt to faith. I say, greatly blessed are those who do not see as you have seen, and yet believe my testimony that I am a risen, living, powerful Savior. Perhaps that's where you are tonight. I was there a lot longer ago than I care to imagine when I first met living Christians. Unlike Murdo McLean, I wasn't going to take it lying down. I too thought I was a Christian. I too thought that my slate was as clean as the next fellow's slate. And I argued with them. I argued with them that these experiences of which they spoke could not possibly be true. And if you'd asked me how I knew they couldn't possibly be true, I would have given you this answer. They can't be true because I've never experienced them. Now, my friends, in the modern world, people will tell you that's scientific, logical rationalism. It's not. It's pig-headedness. It's saying the only things that happen are the things that I can understand and measure, and the only thing anybody can experience are the things I have already experienced. It's a piece of sheer arrogance. And it was a piece of sheer arrogance on Thomas's part to turn to these disciples who were full of joy and say, well, I'm above that kind of thing. And it must have been very, very painful for him, although wonderfully, graciously done by Jesus, for Jesus to give him this little hint, Thomas, all the time you were saying that, I was there and I could hear you. Isn't that something? I don't know whether the disciples argued with Thomas, one rather has the impression that they didn't, that they just left him, left him and prayed for him, as people I know prayed for me, that he would have his eyes opened and that he would discover the truth of what they were saying. And in this painful but gracious way, Jesus came to him and said, Thomas, I was there all the time. I'm always there, all of the time. I see everything you do. I hear everything you say. One day I will stand before you and say, what do you think now? My friends, that's as true of you and me as it surely was of Thomas. He sees everything you do. He knows every thought you have. He hears every word you speak. And yet he still wants to come to you. You who have perhaps, like Thomas, denied him. He still wants to come to you. And to say to you, now reach out. And take me for yourself as others have taken me, 
for themselves and doubt no more but believe. I wonder if that's the word that you need to hear tonight. Doubt no more. Believe. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful Easter day that you've given to us. And thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, a light shining in this dark world. And thank you for his power and for his grace. And thank you that though he knows us through and through and hears every word we say and understands all of our comings and goings, our fightings within, our fears without, thank you that he continues to come to us and to call us to trust in him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that on this Christmas and on this Easter, this year when we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, but especially on this Easter when we celebrate his resurrection from the dead, that we may be sure in this year of our Lord, 1999, that he is risen and that he is able to save and to change. Hear us and help us to trust in him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, as you leave church this evening, we always have a number of booklets about the Christian life and about Christian faith on the book rack at the side of the church as you leave. And if you would like to take one of these and read more about the Christian faith, if you are not yourself a professing Christian, then please do so as you leave church this evening. We're going to close our service and indeed close our day of worship this Easter Sunday evening by singing Christ triumphant, ever reigning, Savior, Master, King, Lord of heaven, our lives sustaining, hear us as we sing. Amen. Not a bad Easter message. Yeah, I forgot to mention it was preached on Easter a few years ago to be exact. But uh, stay tuned. We've got more coming up. Uh, Contending for the Faith Lecture by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We come back, we continue with a bonus lecture on Contending for the Faith. Stay tuned. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents 
Church Day Select. Flying. They're flying the code orange flag. It's the SSF Audacity. This is our chance, men. This egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough. Two arms. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. Aye, aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. band drummer and man battle station. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, keep going. The enemy's not going to wait for us. Put your back to the right Come on, get those fighters. Get them weird out. No warning and no play. Come on, let's go. Go, go, go. Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furtick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers, send them a... Hang on, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire cannons, I sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! You think we would surrender in an hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose. Let loose the cannons. But but we're not within silence. If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into their port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! Ha! You call that an attack? I have God on my side. He said this to me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why why aren't we firing our cannons? We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack. 
Come on, men! We can't lose! Aye, aye, sir! Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there! Go away! We have nothing to say to you! I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, men. Ready? Aim. Go! What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I'm surrendering. Geronimo! Take me with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side. We shall prevail. We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, 
Trying to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Finding for the Faith can cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is completely inept and not capable of actually exegeting a biblical passage and has no clue as to how to bring Jesus to bear on it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. It's a little, a tiny little bit of money. $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And if if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And don't forget to pick up your 2013 uh, Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt, if you haven't already. Uh, we're having a, a fall bake sale uh, to make up for our annual summer slump, something that we always have here at Fighting for the Faith. And the way you do that, go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and pick up your T-shirt today. They're only nineteen ninety-five. That includes shipping and handling inside of the United States. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. And now here's the balance of today's uh, episode of Fighting for the Faith, a, a uh, Sinclair Ferguson bonus track, if you would, a, uh, a sermon that he delivered on the book of Jude, the entire thing. Uh, and it's entitled Contending for the Faith. Here's Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. Now we're turning this evening to the little letter of Jude at the back of the Bible, almost the last book of the entire Bible. The easiest way to find it is to get the book of Revelation and turn left and you'll find the little book of Jude. It's on page 1027 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to read various sections this evening from the book of Jude and then try to look together at its great message. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. 
May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 12, these are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. We've come this evening to the fifth and last in a series of evening studies we've been enjoying on these five one-chapter books of the Bible. We come to the last of them, but by no means the least of them. Like those other books we've been reading, Obadiah, Second and Third John, the letter to Philemon, the great letter of Jude far outweighs its size in the intensity of its teaching and the greatness of its significance that was underlined to me during the course of this week as I'd finished my basic preparation for this evening and thought I would have a quiet, leisurely read of a book on the epistle of Jude that I've possessed for decades but never read. 
Indeed, this book has been possessed for about 170 years by people and never read. The leaves had not even been opened and I took it home thinking a couple of hours evening reading and to my astonishment discovered that if it were republished today it would be no less than 1,000 pages long. And in some ways as we read the density of what Jude is saying to his contemporaries we catch a sense of why someone would take a thousand pages to expound one page of the Holy Scriptures. It's a marvelous little book by a man who was obviously a marvelous servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's got one of the very sweetest openings and introductions of any book in the Bible. It's written as you would realize by an author who is virtually unknown to us. He describes himself as Jude or Judas, the brother of James. Almost certainly, therefore, since there was one James in Palestine whose name at this time would have been instantaneously recognized, Jude presents himself as the brother of James and therefore as the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this marvelous way, he refers, rather it seems, to his next oldest brother than referring to the fact that he belongs, as it were, to the holy family and can claim flesh relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he presents himself in this wonderfully modest way, suggesting to us that he who once was one of the fiercest unbelievers in Jesus is now one of the most vigorous defenders of Jesus. And as he defends Jesus, he gives us a marvelous description of what it means to be a Christian. Perhaps alluding to what he himself looked back upon as the ingredients of his own conversion to a living faith in the Lord Jesus. He writes to those who have been called, who are beloved in God the Father, and who have been kept for, or perhaps by, the Lord Jesus Christ. He might have been thinking to himself as he wrote these words, if any man was ever kept for the Lord Jesus Christ, I surely am that man. And he prays for his fellow Christians with a prayer for blessing that is all-embracing. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And this is a not insignificant thing for us to pause on as we launch into this marvelous book. Because what follows contains some of the fiercest words in the New Testament. Some of the most searing judgments on false teachers are to be found coming through the pen of this man Jude. But in this marvelous introduction, he underlines 
for us that gentleness and fierceness, severity and grace are not for the Christian believer antithetical to one another. But indeed they inevitably belong together. That the one whose love for the Lord Jesus Christ burns most brightly will be the one who finds that his heart cannot tolerate anything that will demean or displace the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed when we turn to the substance of what he writes in verse 3, we discover in a sense this is not the letter he really wanted to write. The letter he really wanted to write in a way would have had nothing in it but expressions of the marvels of our salvation. Not that he fails to mention them as these verses that conclude the letter underline for us to him who is able to keep us from falling to present us before the presence of the Father with great joy to the only wise God our Savior, honor and dominion, majesty, might, power. These are the words of a man who understands the glory and the riches of what he here calls in verse 3, our common salvation, the glorious salvation that we share in Jesus Christ. And the man is full of it from his personal experience and he, he longs to be able to write about that. But he understands as we all need to understand that when the rubber meets the road, when push comes to shove, there are times when the sheep need to be defended before they are fed. There are times when in the purposes and providences of God, it is essential for those of us who are the deepest lovers of our Lord Jesus Christ to speak and act vigorously in order to defend the sheep of Jesus Christ. And he is conscious that while his native instinct and preference would be to speak positively about the gospel, he needs in these words to unmask false teachers in order to defend the sheep. It's interesting, isn't it, that when the New Testament tells us how would we recognize somebody who was being called into the ministry of the eldership, one of the things that individual needs to be able to do is to recognize and to deal with false teaching and false teachers. It's a very striking mark of those who are called into Christian leaders. Because, of course, as shepherds, they need to be able not only to feed the sheep, but to protect the sheep and to defend the sheep and to recognize the enemies of the sheep. And here this man who is so obviously a man wonderfully caught up with the privileges and the joys of the gospel is wanting with a wise discernment to point out to his fellow Christians the importance of avoiding false teachers. 
And you'll notice how running like a refrain throughout this little letter, he points them out. For example, in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Verse 8, in like manner, these people, relying on their dreams. Verse 10, these people blaspheme all they do not understand. Verse 12, these people are blemishes on your love feast. Verse 16, these people are grumblers, malcontents. Verse 19, these people cause divisions, are worldly, and are devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now what's so interesting for us in this letter, in this sense, is that Jude does not speak so much about the specific content of their false teaching. But he does tell us how to recognize false teachers and how to guard against them. And you see the wisdom in that. If someone were to sit down and try to explain to you all the false teaching in the world the building would not be able to hold the library. And so you see there is a certain self-defeating character to spending all your time exploring the details of the false teaching. Yes, it is important for one or another believer to know that and to expose that. But you can get all caught up with that. And what Jude is most intimately concerned about, as he writes apparently not to Christian leaders, but to us Christians in general, is that all of us, in all circumstances, should be able to recognize the identifying marks of a false teacher and know how we can be guarded against their false teaching. And it's these two things, very simply, that I want us to draw out from these great verses this evening. How to recognize a false teacher. Well, it's easy, isn't it? All of us in the room here can recognize a mile away a false teacher. But notice how Jude describes them. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, we're a family. Somebody begins to cough, it doesn't matter to us. We're, we're a family here. But you see, it's not so obvious when a false teacher appears. They don't have horns sticking out of their heads. They're able to creep in unnoticed. That's the thing about them, says Jude. You don't actually notice them. That's why your antennae have got to be up. That's why you've got to be able to discern. You've got to be able to see through them. You've got to be able to unmask them. And he suggests to us that there are three ways in which false teachers manifest themselves. First of all is in the nature of their relationship to the Christian fellowship. They are dishonest in their relationship to the church. They creep in under disguise. They come in under cover. And it ought to be clear to us, Jude is saying, 
that they do not have the best interests of the fellowship at heart. That's an interesting test, isn't it? Does this person who comes with his powerful teaching, does he have the best interests of our fellowship at heart? Or does it become obvious that they actually have the best interests of themselves at heart? And then you begin to see it in their teaching, he says. Not only is there a dishonest relationship to the fellowship, they're not real with us. But there is in their teaching a subtle distortion of the gospel. And he pinpoints one of the ways in which this emerges. It's what they make of the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul puts it to Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared teaching us to deny ungodly lusts and to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these false teachers, you see it in their lives, they teach the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but their lives are characterized by a kind of licentiousness. Think of some of the exposés that we've had over the years of those whose names have been in the newspapers, on the television screens, to whom people have sent millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And sometimes perhaps if you've watched them on television, you've thought surely anyone with any discernment would see that this man is pulling the wool over the eyes of the people and there must be something deeply spiritual sick in his soul. And then suddenly it's all exposed. And so he says, and he says it several times over, there is a godless aspect to their personal character. And he pinpoints that three times, verse 4, verse 15, and again in verse 18. How does that emerge? Well, one of the ways it emerges is in a spirit of arrogance. Look at what he says about them in verse 8. He says, these people relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, if we had time this evening, we could go into all this, but you see the picture in general. This is somebody who is getting taller and taller and taller and taller in his own estimation. So confident is he that he dares to blaspheme the glorious ones. And he relies upon his dreams. There is a spirit of deep arrogance that he is the man. There is, a, there is a professionalism without a reality. And then there is, says Jude also, notice in verse 12, there is a deep self-obsession. These are blemishes on your love feasts. Now it's the words that follow, I draw your attention to. As they feast with you without fear. Now notice these words, looking after themselves. It would be difficult for the translators, I think, to communicate what I believe is the nuance of what Judah is saying here. But the verb he uses here is the verb for shepherding. 
And you see what he's saying? Leaders among God's people are called to be shepherds of the people, to defend the people and to feed the people, to defend them from false teaching and to nourish them with the teaching of the gospel and to come alongside them and to encourage them and to have fellowship with them and to deprive themselves if that's going to be of a benefit to the flock. But you see these people as the ESV has it are looking after themselves. They are feeding themselves. They are shepherding themselves. Shepherding themselves rather than shepherding the people of God because their obsession is their self. Judas saying, if you have eyes to see, you will see in the Old Testament scriptures, he seems to suggest you'll even see in the old Jewish traditions, in the books of Jewish tradition not to be found in the Old Testament scriptures. You'll see that the whole tradition of the Jewish people, and perhaps this letter is written from Palestine to Palestine, the whole world in which we live, says unmask these false teachers and recognize them for what they really are. And you notice some of the most obvious telltale signs they are grumblers. Rather than love the people of God and serve the people of God, no matter what it costs them, they will grumble. They will grumble. Now why would anyone grumble? Why do people grumble? Because they think they deserve better for themselves. And you see, when the sheep are difficult, they do nothing but grumble. Because they are saying, the sheep should be better for me. Instead of saying, oh Lord, how can I be better in order to feed the sheep? And so, says Jude, do you remember the highway code? At least I remember the highway code, the Scottish highway code we were taught when we were children. There is danger out there in the road, so when you come to the edge of the road, you do three things. Number one, you stop. Number two, you look. Number three, you listen. That's what Jude is saying. The highway code in this matter is stop and look. What do you see in these people's lives? And what do you hear communicated by these people's spirit? Is it the love and the grace and the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it self, 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 self? And even though you can't put your finger on why there is something wrong. You know, some of us who love music, we listen to music, but... We're not musically trained and we listen to something. Ah, oh, there's something wrong there. He was off key there, a little off there. And we don't know why. But we've listened to so much of the music, we've learned to recognize the real thing. And this is what Jude is saying as he longs for his fellow Christians to be defended against these false teachers. He says, you need to know how to recognize them. Stop. Look, what do you see? Listen. What is the spirit that is communicated to you? 
But then you notice he takes up the rest of this marvellous book in verses 17 to 23 by teaching us very specifically how to guard ourselves against these false teachers. How are we going to guard ourselves against these false teachers? Well, he says, first of all, if I can give you the principle, it's this. Be well grounded in the apostolic word. Look at verses 17 and 18. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. See, this is a great thing. Things go wrong in the church. False teaching comes into the church. But says, says Jude, instead of hanging your head down saying, oh, isn't this terrible? How could this have happened? Oh, isn't this awful? He says, no, the scriptures warned you about this. It may be heartbreaking, it may be difficult, it may call for you to do very difficult and painful things. But you see, if your heart and mind have been soaked in the scriptures, you're kept stable. You'll not be moved, you'll be kept stable because although your heart breaks that there may be false teaching invading the church, you're not destabilized by it. You say to yourself, the scriptures have taught me to expect this and the scriptures have taught me how to handle this. You notice incidentally he gives us another mark of false teachers. They're divisive in nature. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. So we're to be well grounded in the apostolic word. It says our minds are full of that word and our spirits are in tune with that word that we learn to recognize anything that isn't in tune with that word. And then he says you are to be secondly diligent in building yourself up in the faith. Be well grounded in the apostolic word verses 17 to 18, be diligent in building yourself up in the faith. Verses 20 and 21, you beloved. It's just that wonderful word, oh, he uses it several times. Come on now, he's saying, beloved. I know there is something painful about this teaching I'm giving you, but come on now, beloved. Here's something else. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying as we learn to pray, we become sensitive to the Lord. As we learn to fellowship in the love of God, we become more and more sensitive to any teaching that does not build us up in the love of God. As we look to the mercy of Jesus Christ in his glorious return, we're given, our eyes are lifted up from the struggles that we're in here upon the earth and we know that we are on the Lord's side and that he is on our side and he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against it. And he says there's something else for you to do as you 
as you drink in the apostolic word, as you are diligent in building yourself up in the faith, always says, keep an eye out for each other, won't you? Just watch out for each other. Some of you, he says, are doubting. You're struggling. Is this, perhaps this teaching is true. And you're, you're doubting. Oh, he says, dear Christians, don't come down on the doubting like a ton of bricks. Don't take all your big books of systematic theology and bang them on the heads and say bang, 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 bang. We laugh, but you've seen it, and that's why we laugh about it, isn't it? We've seen it. Oh no, he says, have mercy on them. See their need, be be gentle, draw them in, love them back, love them back. I wonder if that's why some people do drift away into false teaching, because it seems at first as those people care more about me. They want to spend time with me. They want to focus on me. Oh, you outlove those false teachers, says Jude to his fellow believers. And there are some, he says, who are already burning. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Well, that would be a sermon, wouldn't it? What does it mean to snatch people out of the fire when they're already burning? How can we do it? And he assumes that we will be able to do it. We'll know how to do it. And it looks as though he suggests there are some who are even in the fire. Show mercy, he says, with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are some who have been taken in. And, and in order to bring them out, we've got to go very near the fire he says, don't go in there in all the confidence. I know all the right doctrine. I can bring them out of the fire. No, he says, this is a spiritual matter. And you need to go in there with a certain sense of trembling, calling upon God to give you mercy. Wow, what a day. False teachers in the morning. False teachers in the evening. False teachers all the day long. This is this has been a heavy duty day. I didn't think about it when Colossians 2 crossed with the letter of Jude. And none of us, or few of us, I'm sure, feel capable of this exhortation of Jude being realized in our lives. We ourselves struggle. Do you notice the whole way in which he has framed his teaching is this. Keep yourselves in the love of God, he says in verse 21, because he has already said in verse 1, you are those beloved in God who are kept for or by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying at the end of the day, we don't do this on our own resources, in our own strength. We ourselves are open to false teaching. We are frail and fragile. Some of the best have been led astray by false teaching. So he says you need to keep looking up. 
as you keep yourself in the love of God, as you seek to have fellowship with God in His grace and in His love, you need to keep looking up knowing that He is keeping you by and for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so He comes full circle. He says, you know this, I'd rather have written to you about the riches of the love of God in Jesus Christ. But let me at least end with it. My paper, he says, my paper's almost full, but let me end with it. Now he says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. And even in the midst of false teaching and false teachers, whom you begin to recognize, he says, he is able to keep you from falling. You know, like some of Paul's statements, I think when I read those words as a young Christian, I thought to myself, is that all there is to it? Here I am wanting to charge the kingdom of darkness as a young man and do great things for God. And I'm going to do them. And Now, you look back and you see all the false teaching and all the false teachers and some who have fallen and some whose garments have been in flames and you say, oh God, it is the most amazing thing in all the world that to this day you have kept me from falling. And so I look not to myself, he said, but to him who loved us, who died for us, who preserves and protects us. I trust the whole of my life into his care. Isn't that something? We're surrounded by false teaching of all kinds of subtle manner. And we need to learn to see through it, he says. But most of all, we need to learn to rest all of our needs in him who can keep us from falling. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that urges us to open our eyes to see what devious influences surround us. But rather than terrify us, comforts and encourages us to believe that you will hold on to us. Give us faith and grace to Hold on to our Lord Jesus Christ and help us to encourage one another to keep ourselves in the love of God. We ask it for your great name's sake. Amen. Amen. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.